Are you lukewarm in your faith, lukewarm in your love towards God? Then Jesus has a message for you. Welcome to the Faith in a Busy World podcast with me, Steve Griffiths. Yes, welcome to you. And if you are wondering if you're in the right place, I can assure you that you are. We've just rebranded our material from The Busy Christian to Faith in a Busy World. And I hope that the new name and our material will continue to be helpful for you as you explore what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of a very busy life. Well, in this podcast, we're looking at the last of the seven churches to whom John was writing in the book of Revelation, the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And as always, we're going to be having a brief look at the city itself before turning to the text of the letter to see what it has to say to us about the danger of having a lukewarm faith and, of course, what to do about it if that describes us. Well, Laodicea was originally situated on a hill between some valleys next to two rivers called the Asopus and the Capris. But the rivers themselves were not actually that helpful because warm, tepid water ran through the streams that were full of lime and lime scale clogging up the pipes and the plumbing were part of the ongoing problems of the city. When the town was originally built, it was known as Diospolis, which means City of Zeus, and then it was renamed Rhodas until eventually it was renamed Laodicea in honour of the wife of Antiochus II, who was called Laodice. So Laodicea became Laodicea about 255 BC, or thereabouts anyway. And Laodicea soon became a very prosperous town. It was really well situated for trade and became one of the most influential economic centres in Asia Minor, or what we now know as Turkey. And like some of its neighbouring towns, there was a flourishing wool trade there and they produced a particular type of black wool for clothing. That's going to become important later on in the podcast, so hold on to that thought. So they produced this particular type of black wool for clothing and the money rolled into the city. Now, when earthquakes hit the city in AD 17 and again in AD 60, some of the local cities, if you've been listening to previous podcasts, you'll know that some of them went to the Roman authorities and had their taxation reduced so that they could have some money to rebuild the cities. Well, Laodicea actually turned down financial support from the Roman Empire because they were rich enough to sort out the mess themselves. Laodicea was also a very well-advanced cultural centre as well. The city had Greek art adorning its walls. There was a really strong emphasis on literature and poetry and other forms of writing, as well as beautiful sculptures and monuments as well. And the infrastructure of Laodicea was really impressive. There was a stadium, there was a gymnasium, there were a number of large theatres, there were subterranean passages for chariots and horsemen. There was a really impressive gate into the city, there were colonnades, there were sarcophagi, and there was an aqueduct as well that used the most modern technology available at the time. And science wasn't neglected either. There was a large medical school in Laodicea and it was famous. And again, hold on to this fact because we're going to come back to this in a few moments time. It was famous for producing an ointment for the eyes to bring healing to bad eyesight. And Laodicea was so rich and influential, it was such a strong financial centre that they even minted their own coins in the city as well. 
And the coins that have been discovered show a very clear allegiance to the Roman Empire. But there was a large Jewish population there in the town as well. And the rich Jews sent nine kilograms of gold each year to the temple in Jerusalem towards its upkeep and ministry. So a hugely successful and flourishing city. And given that, it's not surprising that Laodicea also had a strong church flourishing there. It's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it's likely that Epaphras from Colossae set the church up in Laodicea, and that it met in the house of Nympha. And Paul, we know, certainly wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea, because in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, he writes this, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha, and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So he clearly wrote to them. But sadly, it seems that that letter has been lost now. But we do know that the church in Laodicea was flourishing. So what message does Jesus have for the Christians there? And what can we learn from what Jesus says to them about our own faith? Well, I'll warn you now, it's not pretty. So let's turn to the letter and see. Well, the letter begins in verse 14 like this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So from the very beginning, Jesus is affirming himself as the embodiment of the truth of God. These are the words of the Amen. Amen means something like, so be it. And it's a title ascribed to God in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, which reads as the God of truth, or in some versions, the God whose name is Amen. So Jesus here is presenting himself to the Laodiceans as the guarantee of the truth of God in their situation. And then he strengthens that claim by making it a second time, but with different words. He calls himself the faithful and true witness. These words would have felt encouraging to the Laodiceans when they first heard them. But in reality, Jesus is setting himself up as faithful and true in direct contrast to the Laodiceans, who, as we'll come on to see, are unfaithful and false in their witness. And then Jesus describes himself as the ruler of God's creation. And again, this is a claim to his authority. But I think there's something particularly clever about the way Jesus phrases it, given the fact that he's writing to the Laodiceans. Two things we've already noted. Firstly, there was a large Jewish population in the city and presumably many Jewish Christians. And a key text in Jewish spirituality is Proverbs chapter 8. And in verse 22 of Proverbs 8, we read this. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. So this is a self-description of Jesus that spoke into the very heart of Jewish spirituality. But also remember that the church in Laodicea had received Paul's letter to the Colossians. And how does that letter start in verse 15? Paul writes this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
So in describing himself in this way in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is reminding the Laodiceans of their dual heritage, firstly their Jewish heritage, but also their distinctly Christian heritage as well. He's drawing them back to the beginning of their faith, reminding them of their roots, so that when he comes to critique their present practices, they will know just how far they've fallen. And so we move on to verse 15, which starts with words that uh, by now are so familiar to us, because if you've been following the other podcasts in the series, then you'll know that Jesus has said these words to uh, most of the other churches, actually. These four words, I know your deeds. Now in Revelation with the other churches, these words have sometimes been spoken in compassion to churches that are being resilient and struggling on through difficult times. But sometimes they've been spoken in anger as well to churches that have failed Jesus through their deeds. And when they've been spoken in anger, in anger, what has normally followed is a litany of all the things that that particular church has done wrong, accepting false prophets, tolerating false worship, having the name of being alive even when they're dead, and so on. But in the letter to the Laodiceans, there is no such litany here. It reads almost as if Jesus is exhausted and tired and is at the point of giving up on this church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. In fact, the comparison is stronger in the Greek. You are neither very cold nor boiling hot. The Laodiceans don't reject the gospel, but they don't seem to embrace it with passion either. The Laodiceans don't do anything particularly immoral, but they don't seem to have any zeal for God either. The Laodiceans don't reject Jesus, but they don't really seem to embrace him with a heartful of passionate love either. They're not cold, and they're not boiling hot. They're just lukewarm. The Laodiceans would have known all about that, because the waters in the rivers and the springs of Colossae, where their sister church was, ran pure and icy cold. And in the other direction, the waters in the rivers and the springs of the Hierapolis geographically nearby again, ran boiling hot like geysers. But the rivers and springs from Laodicea, Asopus and Capris, were lukewarm and tepid and full of limescale. What a terrible comparison to be drawn to their faith. The cold waters of Colossae would have brought refreshment, but the Laodicean church couldn't provide that. The hot waters of the Hierapolis brought healing, but the Laodicean church couldn't provide that either. They were just lukewarm and full of spiritual limescale clogging up the pipes of their spirituality. This is a damning judgment from God. And Jesus says to them, I wish you were either one or the other. He would rather be in dialogue with an honest atheist than with a lukewarm Christian. Jesus will embrace a non-believer before he will embrace a self-satisfied religious man. Be either cold or hot, but whatever, don't be lukewarm. And so we read perhaps the harshest words of Christ in the Bible in chapter 3 verse 16. He says this, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now let's unpack that phrase a bit. Spit you out of my mouth is actually a rather polite translation. 
The idea really is about Jesus vomiting us out of his mouth. The idea is that lukewarmness makes Jesus literally sick to his stomach, so sick that he will throw up at the thought of a lukewarm question. And that's really hard to hear, isn't it? The idea that lukewarm Christianity makes Jesus want to throw up is a hard thing to listen to. But that's what the scriptures say. But even in the midst of such harshness, there is still mercy and there is grace and there is compassion because Jesus says, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. I am about to. If you know that you're a lukewarm Christian, there is still time for you to change. There is still time for you to turn your life around and live a life pleasing to God. Judgment is not an inevitability if you repent and you follow him with passion. If you renew your faith, and your zeal for God, Jesus will not vomit you out of his mouth. You need to search your heart and make the changes necessary. And if we understand the verse in that way, we can then read the rest of the letter to the Laodiceans, not as the reality of judgment, but as an urgent appeal for repentance. And so it is for us. Jesus is urging us to repent of our lukewarm faith, so that we can be embraced by him with love. It's never too late with God. And in verse 17 and 18, Jesus speaks to them in words that they would have known well. He says this, You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Well, the Laodiceans, living in the heart of the banking sector of Asia Minor, living in the shadow of the cloth mills, living in the shadow of the eye ointment factories, would have known what it is to be rich, to be well clothed, to have good sight. What more could they possibly need? But Jesus contrasts their faith with the city itself. They may have banks and clothes and eye ointment in abundance. But verse 17, you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. What a contrast. These are really hard words for them to hear, aren't they? There is such a complacency about the Laodicean Christians that they thought they had it all, but in reality, they had nothing. But such is the grace of God that he urges them to change their ways, and if they do, they will receive all they could possibly need and more. And then verse 18, one of the most incredible verses of scripture, I think, Jesus says, I advise you. Now that is such a great phrase, isn't it? I advise you. If Jesus advises us to do something, we'd be pretty stupid not to do it, wouldn't we? He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. We're talking about genuine wealth, spiritual wealth, not the type of short-term gain that they can get from the bank. And then he says, I advise you to buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Forget the specialised black wool from the factory. What you need is white clothing. And there's a few biblical themes here. We're reminded of the idea that white symbolises purity. We are reminded of Adam and Eve and the shame of their nakedness when they fell in the Garden of Eden. We're reminded of passages in the Old Testament where nakedness is a sign of God's judgment. The wealth from black wool is not enough for the Laodiceans. Jesus offers them purity and forgiveness and restoration. And then again in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. 
There are far too many biblical metaphors in verse 18 for us to look at fully. It's an incredible verse in and of itself. But we are just reminded of the wealth of faith. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, when he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. We're reminded of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, where God says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We're reminded of the many stories where Jesus healed the blind and in restoring their sight used that as a metaphor for seeing God. And when we get to verse 19, we are confirmed in our belief that this passage is not about judgment so much as Jesus urging us into a new future with him. A future that has passion and zeal for the faith as its hallmark. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Do you ever feel rebuked by God? Do you ever feel disciplined by God? I know I do. And that is a sure sign that he loves us and wants what is best for us. He has not rejected us. He has not vomited us out of his mouth. Instead, he speaks harshly to us in order to stir up our spirits so that we can enjoy life in all its fullness with him. So this passage is not intended to make us feel depressed or fearful. This is a passage born out of love and compassion. Tough love, yes, but love all the same. And again, this is an idea that fits well with the Jewish spiritual tradition of the first hearers. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves as a father the son he delights in. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 verses 10 to 11 says this, God disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those whom have been trained by it. So Jesus speaks harshly to the Laodiceans and perhaps to us, But these harsh words are the gateway to a new and better life, the gateway to life in all its fullness shared with Jesus Christ himself. And so I think that gives us some real understanding then to the context of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, which is probably one of the most misquoted verses in scripture. Jesus says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. How many times do we hear that verse used in evangelism? How many times do we use this verse as a call to non-Christians to come into a relationship with Jesus? Well, actually, it has nothing to do with that at all. This verse is written to professing Christians who have become lukewarm in their faith. This is not a call to faith for the first time. This is a call for lukewarm Christians to repent of their lack of passion and open the door again to the Saviour about whom they have become apathetic. And the language used in this verse reminds us, of course, of the Last Supper and the moment when Jesus shared a meal with those for whom he was about to die. But this verse, of course, looks forward 
as well as looks backward. It reminds us of the Last Supper, but it also gives us hope for the supper that is to come. In Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30, where Jesus says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that reference to Luke chapter 22 brings us nicely on to the next verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where Jesus says this, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is drawing our minds back to Luke 22, the sitting, the eating, the drinking, the receiving of a throne. It's all here. Jesus is drawing together the present and the future, saying that how we respond today will impact our destiny in the future. Will we open the door to Jesus? Will we allow Christ in to come and sit and eat with us? Well, if so, there is a throne waiting for us in heaven, and that is an amazing promise. In fact, we cannot imagine any higher honour to be bestowed on us. So isn't it incredible that Jesus offers the highest honour to the Laodiceans, the church that seems to have fallen the furthest? How amazing is God's grace? We read of Christians who are lukewarm and apathetic, Christians whose lack of passion makes Jesus sick to the stomach, and yet he offers them forgiveness and grace and mercy on such a grand scale that they will receive the greatest honour of all. The last shall truly be the first. So if you have felt convicted of a lukewarm attitude towards Jesus, there is still waiting for you forgiveness on a grand scale. And the greatest honour that Jesus could possibly bestow on you is a seat in the throne room of God for all eternity. Be earnest and repent. That is Jesus' advice to us. And what folly it would be if we refuse to follow it. So thanks for giving me your time today. I hope that you found this podcast useful and I look forward to being back with you again very soon. Bye bye.